So as we turn to the scripture this morning, studying in Genesis as we have been, seeing men and women at work, often in sin even, that we would be poised by our heart, Father, to hear and learn from you and to see ourselves reflected in the text and to be ready, Father, to make adjustments in how we think and who we are and what we do. To learn from the truth of your word, whether by the mistakes of others or by the example of others. Help us in these things, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 27. We go back to where we left off. And rather than go through a long recap, I think in this week, let's just jump back in. We're back at chapter 27, verse 5. Watching Isaac conspire with Esau to award his inheritance to the wrong son. Start with me in chapter 27, verse 5. Rebekah was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speaking to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me that I might eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me two choice young goats from there, that I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall bring it to your father that he may eat, so that he may bless you before his death. Jacob answered his mother, Rebekah, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and then I will be as a deceiver in his sight and I will bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, your curse be on me, my son, only obey my voice and go get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son which were with her in the house and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the young goat goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. She also gave the savory food and the bread which she had made to her son, Jacob. Isaac is planning to give his blessing to the eldest son. And as it would happen, Rebecca is nearby listening, perhaps at the doorway, and she hears Isaac's plan and immediately she recognizes what her husband is up to and in the same moment what she must do in response. Isaac here is working secretly behind her back, behind Jacob's back, to accomplish his own desires rather than to fulfill the Lord's desires. He's going to award the blessing, his chief blessing, to Esau on the premise that he's near death and this is the right time to do it. As we saw last week, he's not really near death at all. He has 43 more years of life. I can tell you, I don't care how sick you feel, if you've still got 43 years of life, you're not really feeling that close to death. It's a ruse. It's, it's an excuse to do what he wants, to take opportunity while he has it. So at this point, we need to remember a little bit about what the birthright means, because that becomes a center point, the focus, really, of the narrative going through the rest of this chapter. You remember, the birthright gave the oldest son, traditionally, the right to a double portion 
of his father's inheritance, of his estate, all that he owned and would pass on to his children. With it usually came patriarchal authority so that the oldest would inherit the right to rule the clan as his father had done. And along with that, the chief blessing of the father. Now, the blessing was the means by which the father conferred all of these other privileges, conferred the birthright by pronouncing the blessing. It was their equivalent of what today would be a last will and testament being signed and then executed in probate. Now, on that day, the blessing, though, had special significance. It was understood to be a prophetic statement with the power of God. They had enough understanding of God's ever-present reality in their daily life and His sovereignty through matters of the blessing that they took it as a foregone conclusion that whatever the Father would say in these blessings was the voice of God speaking through their Father and would have the force of God behind it. So it mattered greatly what He said and to whom He said it. So this blessing was itself a very important issue, but with it came the birthright inheritance. Now, we know from past teaching in this book that the Lord has already declared that the younger in this family, that is Jacob, is going to receive the greater blessing. He's going to receive the birthright. And after that, we saw Jacob purchase that very birthright from his brother Esau in a legitimate deal, which when we studied back then, we understood was not a trick, was not false in any respect. It was a legitimate deal which both parties entered into with their eyes wide open. As a result of that deal, we came to learn that Esau cares nothing for the promises of God because that's what makes Abraham's inheritance so unique. Unlike any other man who walked the earth in his day, what Abraham owned that he could pass along in this inheritance was a promise from God, a covenant that God had extended to Abraham, given then to Isaac, and now Isaac had the opportunity to pass it along. But because this was God's promise, God alone determines who will inherit his promises. He doesn't leave it to men to make that choice. It's not a matter of tradition or culture. It comes down to God's sovereign will. And in his sovereignty, he declared before either child was born and had done good nor bad, he declared it would be Jacob who would inherit His promises. Jacob would own the birthright. And it was through that purchase that the Lord brought about his will for Jacob to receive that inheritance. But then we still have this matter of Isaac and Isaac's role as the earthly father who will transfer his birthright to one of these two sons. And as we see, Isaac wants the oldest to receive the blessing in keeping with culture. In keeping with tradition, just as in an earlier day, his father, Abraham, had wanted to give the birthright to Ishmael, because after all, Ishmael was the firstborn. But just then, just as then, when God told Abraham, no, it will not be Ishmael, it will be Isaac. Similarly, God has said it will not be Esau, it will be Jacob. So Isaac now is knowingly, intentionally working to thwart both God and the laws of men, because he's working against the pronouncement of God that was spoken to Rebecca concerning the two sons. And he is working against the laws of the day, which say that this sale of the birthright is legitimate and binding. And Isaac was obligated to observe it. He's working against both. He cares little for either, it appears. 
So he announces his plan to Esau. Esau scurries off to go get the game that Isaac has said he wants to taste before the blessing. And Rebecca has heard this plan. So she jumps into action as well. She's going to prepare her other son, Jacob, to play the part of Esau so that he can fool dad into letting dad pronounce the blessing on Jacob instead. And Rebecca knows she only has a, a window of opportunity here. Uh, Esau will take some amount of time to find the game and hunt it down and kill it and bring it in. Then he himself has to prepare the animal and make the meal and so on. This takes a little time, a few hours at least. And she has to act faster than Esau to do basically the same thing. Although she has the advantage, she's not going out to hunt. She simply has to go out to the stables and take one of the animals that they already have. So she tells Jacob, go. Take two goats, kill them. I'll prepare the meal the way dad loves it. And then you can get the blessing. Now, hearing the plan, Jacob makes some obvious conclusions himself. He, he gets the big picture. He's no dummy. And as he thinks through the plan, he says, wait a minute, there's some obvious problems with this plan, mom. Dad may be fooled by the food and his eyesight is certainly poor. But is he really going to be fooled that I'm Esau? I mean, after all, Esau is this hairy guy and I'm not wouldn't take very much for dad to reach out and grab an arm and realize I'm not Esau. And when he does that, the whole ruse will be exposed. And then Jacob says it would lead to him receiving a curse rather than the blessing because he would be seen as a deceiver. But the word in Hebrew there is a little interesting. The word for deceiver in Hebrew is actually the word for a mocker. So a better English translation would be to say Jacob would be seen as mocking his father. Why would it be mocking? Well, mocking his blindness. To come in and pretend to be someone else could be interpreted by dad as a mocking of his inability to see who this person is. In either way, the point is the same. If he is seen to be mocking, it will bring his dad to a point of anger based on this humiliation that his son is putting upon him. And in his anger, he will strike back and he will pronounce a curse. Here you see again the importance of what the dad says in this culture. They recognize that whatever comes out of his mouth is God-derived, God-driven. If it be a curse, it would mean God himself is cursing. And they don't want to risk that for obvious reasons. In response, what does Rebecca say? Rebecca says, well, whatever curse would come upon you as a result of what we're hatching, don't worry about that. That will rest on me, she says. Well, what she's saying is, whatever the guilt and consequences are of this action will fall on me, and I will bear your guilt as well. Can she do that? Can she actually make such a bargain? Does it work that way? No. No, it does not work that way. She already has guilt of her own in this conspiracy that leaves her unavailable to take anyone else's guilt. A guilty person cannot remove the sin of another person. That's a basic principle of Scripture, basic principle of life. Now, if in theory, if there was an innocent party in a courtroom and a guilty party in a courtroom, and the guilty party is being convicted and a sentence is being pronounced against the guilty party, theoretically, the innocent party could come in and say, I will bear that punishment in place of the one who is guilty. Not to say that would actually happen in real life, but theoretically, you could say, fine, we'll take the innocent person instead and put them in jail. But if that innocent person was not innocent at all, if they were a co-conspirator, if they were equally guilty of the same crime, well, they can't take the place of the other person. They have to do time for their own sake. 
By the way, this is precisely, as you probably can tell, precisely the role Christ plays for each of us. What I just defined is propitiation in Scripture. That there can be, through the work of Christ, an opportunity for each of us to receive a substitute in our place come the day of our judgment. That by our faith in Christ's sinless life and his sacrificial death, he can take our place. What allows for that is the principle that Christ had no guilt of his own, that he lived a sinless life. Given that he had no sin, he was an available substitute for someone else who did. And he took our place when he died on the cross. So in reality, when Rebecca tells Jacob, don't worry, son, whatever happens, it'll be on me. Her words convinced her son to go along with this plan. But it doesn't make her words true. In fact, as we will see when the story plays out, there is a lot of consequence to spread around and everybody gets a piece of it, including Jacob. So based on her convincing argument, Jacob follows Rebecca's instructions. He finds two goats. He butchers the animals and she prepares the meal. She puts Esau's clothes on Jacob's body so he can smell better, you know, smell like him, kind of have that odor of the clothes. And then she takes patches of the young goat's skin and she attaches it to his arms and to his neck. As you imagine this, though, Jacob must have been a pretty comical sight to behold at this point, right? He must have looked pretty strange with goat hair stuck on him and clothes that don't fit him because he's a small guy, right, compared to Esau, the little small Jacob. And Rebecca knows Isaac is going to be using his other senses to find out who he's dealing with. His eyesight is so poor, he's not going to be able to see who's speaking to him. And when you have a guilty conscience, your thoughts will naturally go toward who could find out. How could I be discovered? How do I cover my tracks? Harry Truman once said something I think is instructive on this point. He said, I never lie so that I don't have to remember what I've said. The lie becomes something I have to remember. Because if I let it slip out of my mind, I might just fall back to what is truth, which would expose my lie. In this case, they've prepared Jacob so that they can deal with a man who is going to be suspicious because he knows he's doing the wrong thing. By the way, the whole scene that we're going to study from here forward, it's driven by human senses. Take note of how much human senses, the five senses, are the driving forces behind the narrative. You have taste of game in a stew. You have feel of skin and hair. You have the smell of the clothes of Esau and of the earth and the the ground. You have the sound of voices causing Isaac to be suspicious. And you have the lack of eyesight which shuts off that whole opportunity for Esau to know what's really happening. What Scripture is telling you, what Moses is trying to draw out for us is Isaac is relying here on his flesh, on what the body can determine through the senses. He's trying to make discernment of truth through the body, through the flesh. He's noticeably here missing any effort to rely on the Spirit, any opportunity to hear from the Lord, to put his flesh aside. It's a flesh-driven narrative. Now, At this point, you could ask yourself, and you should, why doesn't Rebecca just confront her husband? Why is she going this route? Why didn't she stop the moment she heard what was happening and walk through the door and say, how dare you? And confront him and bring out into the open this whole thing. Well, first, she can't tell her husband she was eavesdropping on him. In that day, in that culture, there's no way. That would have been a disgraceful, disrespectful act on the part of the woman to have intruded into the privacy of her husband in that way. And then 
To call him on it in that way would have been to disgrace him publicly, to let him know that she's discovered his sin. And in that case, all the blame would have shifted onto her and the protests that she had would have been drowned out by his indictment of her for her act of eavesdropping. Then secondly, even if she did confront him, he's the patriarch. He has absolute authority to do what he wants with the blessing according to the culture and the, and the laws of the day. So even if she consulted with him or confronted him, he could just dismiss the charge. He could just say, I don't care what you think. And she would have had no recourse. So her only choice, if she really wants to affect the outcome here, is to work behind his back in the way that we see her doing here. Now, by the same token, you could also ask, why, if Isaac is the patriarch, and if he can do whatever he wants, why is he operating in secret then? Why doesn't he just be the one to say out in the open, you know what, I don't care what you think, I'm going to do it this way. Why does he feel the need to have to do it behind everyone's back? Well, the answer is because he knows Jacob owns the birthright. He's constrained by the same culture and the same traditions and the same law that, in a different sense, is constraining Rebecca. If he were to stand up in front of God and the world and say, I'm going to give this birthright to Esau, then it would take nothing for Jacob to say, wait a minute, Dad, I purchased that. You can't do that. And it would have dishonored Isaac if he was to be seen as a man who goes against law and proper order. Then, by the way, honor was no small thing in that day. And you can see how much it's driving the conversations and driving the behaviors here. Had Isaac done this and gotten away with it, later when that truth emerged, he could have simply claimed that he didn't know about the sale. And in fact, there's probably very little chance anyone would have known about this until after his death anyway. By then, it had been too late. Well, that just brings us right back to where we began. You have a father here with a preference for an ungodly son, the godless Esau, in defiance of God and in defiance of law, in defiance of his wife. A wife, on the other hand, now who's forced to counter what her husband is doing with her own scheme in defense of the godly son, Jacob, hoping that she can ensure that God's preference is honored. So you have a war here. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. It's even reflected in the text. In verses 5 and 6, pay attention to the pronouns. Isaac spoke to his son, Esau. Rebekah spoke to her son, Jacob. The emphasis is in a family split. One side aligned against the other. Isaac speaking with his son. Rebekah speaking with his son. Isaac working with one son to get the meal he wants. Rebekah working with the other son to make a different meal. It's like two families literally at war with one another. Now, the saddest thing about this episode is that Isaac didn't have to set himself against his wife and, as a result, set his sons against one another. He didn't have to do this. Remember last week we said Isaac is the one primarily responsible as the father, as the patriarch, for the breakdown here in the family. And we see it here playing out. He has in his family one godless son. By all accounts... Godless, by all evidence, unbelieving. And then on the other hand, he has a godly son, a peaceful man, we're told, as in the sense of grace filled, a man who is trying to follow in his father's footsteps. And in that case, his choice should have been obvious. It should have influenced where he invested his time and it should have influenced how he gave his attention and his instructions accordingly to the godless son. Isaac should have acknowledged God's choice at least insofar as he could see it in that day. 
He should have mitigated against further damage in the family from the effects of that godless son. And as that son made choice after choice, including marrying two Canaanite wives, which was directly against the instructions of God, he should have done what Abraham did when he was faced with a similar situation. He set that son outside of the family. This is not a matter of disowning him. This is not an issue of giving up hope. It's simply a matter of protecting the godly within the family from the influences of the ungodly and remembering that God is sovereign in all of this. For the godly son, on the other hand, Isaac should have acknowledged God's presence in his life, God's working in this man's life, should have discipled him, should have modeled godly behavior for him, should have shielded him from the influences of his ungodly brother. Again, this isn't a matter of one being in the family and one being disowned or any sort of thing. It is the proper practical response to the differences between godlessness and godliness in our families. It would be no different for me today, for example, if in the case of my family with two kids that I've been blessed to have believers in both cases, that if one of them were to bring an unbelieving spouse into the family dynamic, then I have to contend with that. I have to counsel. I have to eventually make decisions in how the family will live and work together. And I would have to draw some boundaries and help understand we're not about rejecting people, but we are about mitigating against the work of the enemy through the lives of ungodly people. All the while, with hope that God would turn a life around and certainly open to that possibility. But you can't hope against hope that you pretend they're who they're not while you're hoping they become who you want them to be. Isaac's in that situation. He's got two sons, but they're not the same people. And God has made a preference known in in the case of one of these gentlemen, in the case of Jacob, that Isaac needs to understand, recognize, and honor. Here's the most ironic thing in all of the story so far to me. What is the basic reason Isaac found preference for Esau? What are we told in Scripture that drove him to have a preference for this one son? Because he could hunt down interesting game and make tasty food out of it, it led Isaac to have a preference. Well, we've already said that's a fairly pathetic reason to show preference all by itself. But look at the text. Look what Rebecca can do. Rebecca knows how to create a convincing substitute from goats. It's so convincing, in fact, that it will lead Isaac to think he's dealing with Esau. So if he's had a wife who all along was capable of satisfying his taste for this kind of savory food, then self-evidently it's sin. Not only is it a pathetic reason, it's a pointless reason. What you see emerging here out of the story is Isaac is a man who does not recognize that the woman God has selected for him. And you remember the story for how he got this wife, right? God selected this woman for him. And he doesn't recognize this is a woman who is capable of meeting his every need as God designed her to be. And when we fail to see our wife, or let's put it in a general context, when we fail to see our spouse as our ally in a spiritual walk, then what tends to happen is they start to look like the enemy. There's no in-between. They are the one either supporting and encouraging and strengthening our walk in the Lord, or sooner or later they'll start being the ones who stand in the way of what we want. They'll be the ones reminding us inconveniently of... God's word and God's will. Ultimately, they may actually feel forced to work actively against us because of our disobedience to the Lord and our unwillingness to partner with them in that walk. 
And that only increases the problems. That's what you see happening here, in my opinion. Remember, it was Rebecca who heard from the Lord in saying Jacob will be the one who receives the birthright. She knows this, but she also sees in her husband a man who's unwilling to walk accordingly. So at first she reminds him. Maybe later she implores him. And then finally she works against him. Isaac and Rebecca are parents taking sides, working against one another rather than working together to honor the Lord. By the way, that's the point of marriage, ultimately. I mean, there is an earthly benefit. We all understand that. There's a practical need with respect to making children. We all understand that. But there's a spiritual dimension to every marriage. And in a Christian marriage, the equation is one plus one equals three. A man and a wife united in Christ are a stronger vehicle for glorifying God than either could be by themselves. There's a synergy, a multiplicative effect. And that spiritual multiplication is only true when the man and the woman are united in a common mission to follow and serve Christ. When they're not, it's actually a minus effect. They're too busy fighting with each other that they're not at all serving the Lord, even as well as they could by themselves. By the way, I think that's the genesis for Paul saying at one point that it might be better for some never to marry if their intent is to serve the Lord because then their attentions aren't divided. He made that not a mandate, only a recommendation based on personal experience. And he said that it would be better for most to marry in light of the alternative if they are tempted. But his point was essentially this. If marriage is not going to unite you into a stronger union in serving God, then it's only going to have the opposite effect of holding one party back. Whoever is trailing in the spiritual maturity of the of the marriage will hold the other one back. One of the rules I like to remember as a Christian husband is while we don't always agree as a couple at the end of every decision, I want a commitment to move as one to the glory of God. Now, in this case, both wanted the opposite outcomes. One wanted Esau, one wanted Jacob. Only one could win, but it didn't have to be this way. God has already said clearly to this family where the birthright should go. On top of that, Esau has sold his birthright, and that should have settled this matter entirely. Isaac and Rebekah would only have needed to both acknowledge the obvious and then unite together in God's will and carry it out. They would have been a powerful team under those circumstances. So Isaac and Rebekah here, they're like two horses in a tug of war, pulling on the same rope. There's a lot of tension, but they're not going anywhere. And at the end, the stronger horse will win because they'll have the strength to overcome the other. But it comes at the expense of the weaker. That one who gets dragged, they're discouraged, they're defeated. There's no strength in that kind of a partnership. Where is God in all of this? That's really the best question to ask when you read this passage. Is this whole episode the way God intends to bring about this outcome? Is this, is this God at work in this? Or are they actually going against what God wants? For example, is, is Rebecca's deception, is that God's way of bringing about Jacob getting the birthright? Or was it the sale? Was the sale of the birthright, was that God's way of bringing about the outcome he wanted? Or would he actually have preferred to do it some other way? And these other two episodes are just detours in the road along the way that God is working. How do we interpret what we're seeing? Well, the answers to all of those questions, yes. It's the same answer to all of them. Yes, 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 yes. 
Is the deception a part of it? Yes. Is the birthright sale a part of it? Yes. Would God prefer to do it another way? Yes. But it's all God. The story of Isaac and Rebekah and his two sons is ultimately a story of God's sovereignty. This whole episode is a story of God's sovereignty. It began, if you remember, with God choosing and announcing his choice. Right up front, it would be Jacob. In that choice, God made clear Esau was godless and was forsaken. That is shown very clearly in his willingness to sell the birthright. And then God was working to ensure that Rebecca would be there in the moment and hear what Isaac was doing and catch wind of it so that she could react to it. And then, of course, as the deception plays out later in this chapter, its success is by God's hand as well. Did God need this help? No. Would he have preferred it another way? Absolutely. But God is working through the sinful choices of Isaac and Rebekah, of Esau and Jacob, because God works with sinful men and sinful women because that's all he has. There's no choice but to do that if he's going to work through the men and women who live on this earth right now. And yet, God is powerful enough to ensure that all that sin that's at work in his plan ultimately arrives at the right place to the glory of God and according to his will and plan. And at the same time, he can bring all of that sin under proper chastisement so that there are consequences for all of that sin. Remember, his ability to work through our sin is never in itself an excuse for our sin. We can't say to ourselves, well, you know, God works all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So therefore, what does it matter, really? I can sin a little here and there. He'll work it all out to good in the long run. Well, you have to remember how that verse in Romans 8:28 is worded. He works all things to good. That doesn't mean all things start out as good. And it doesn't mean you don't have some bad stuff along the way. It just means that when it's all said and done, it'll be where God wants it. But you know that part we skip in the middle where he works? There are consequences for our sin. There's hurt and pain and regret and hopefully, ultimately, repentance. But once you get through that and you see the good on the backside of whatever God's at work doing through your sin, I'm betting, if you're like me, you'll stand back and say, you know, it would have been better if I hadn't done all that in the first place. In this case, God is working through Isaac's stubbornness and Rebekah's deceptiveness to create a good and necessary outcome. But we also have to know he is going to discipline all of these people, all four of them, because of their sin. This story began with us being introduced very briefly to the wives of Esau. You remember that? The two Canaanite wives who now are creating grief for Isaac and Rebekah. Now, if Jacob had done the same thing, if Jacob took the same step his brother took, and took wives, even just one wife, from among the Canaanites, that would have been devastating to God's plan for his people. He's already told Abraham, you will not take a wife for Isaac out of this people. You will go back to the people you came from. And now it's Isaac's turn to find a wife for his son. His first son is already chosen poorly. What would happen if Jacob made the same mistake? How is God going to ensure that in this kind of a family, a family where Isaac won't even listen to him anymore, that Jacob gets the right kind of wife. Well, if you jump ahead to the end of this story for just a moment, look at the last verse in this chapter. I realize we're not there yet, but I want you to see how God can turn these circumstances to good, even though he's working through the sin of four different people. Rebecca said to Isaac, 
I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? You notice these are bookends on the story. Esau's wives at the beginning, Esau's wives at the end. What's Moses trying to communicate? That the reason God allows the sin of these people to play out in the way that it does is first to ensure that the birthright goes where it should. But in light of their sin, he says, I'm going to turn this to good. And because of what happens in this story, Jacob is made an outcast and a refugee from his own brother's hatred and has to flee back to the family, the ancestral family of Abraham, where he finds his wives, as it turns out. Isn't that the genius of God on display? Isn't that the majesty, the wisdom of God? Turning the sin of this family into the basis for pulling Jacob out of the land and putting him where he needs to be if he's to find the right wife and isolating him away from the Canaanite culture at a time in his life when he would have been seeking a mate. Reminds me of a little story, a cute little story of a girl who was sitting watching her mother do dishes at the kitchen sink and she noticed her mother had a few white hairs starting to appear in her head and the child asks inquisitively, why are your hairs white, mommy? And her mother replied, well, every time you do something wrong or make me cry or unhappy, one of my hairs turns white. To that, the little girl responds saying, well, mom, why is it that all of grandma's hairs are white? (laughs) Well, I won't say any more about that. What a great example of God's sovereignty here. In the lives of sinful people. While Isaac and Rebecca were having their little personal war, struggling in this little circumstance, all the while oblivious to the fact that God was at work through their sin, through the circumstances, to ensure that Jacob finds the right wife. And yet, they will suffer consequences. As a result, Isaac will lose the fellowship of his two sons. Rebecca will never see her favored son again. Jacob will spend 21 years toiling outside the land being cheated by his uncle. Esau will obviously lose the birthright and as a result be set out to a place we later call Edom in reflection of his name. I mean, they all suffer in one way or another as a result of these circumstances. But in the end, God gets what he wants in a way that satisfies his needs. God's sovereignty, by the way, goes even further in this case. Remember verse 9? Rebecca asked for two choice goats to be killed. In the Hebrew text, the description of the goats is important. Rebecca says bring two choice goats, but the Hebrew word for choice is actually just literally the word for good or pure or righteous. Why did she need two goats to make a simple bowl of stew for her husband? It kind of seems like overkill. That was a pun. The answer is God is at work through their sin and through these circumstances to create a picture of Christ. In the law, which we acknowledge arrives many centuries later from this moment, but nonetheless, he will give Israel instructions on how to conduct something called the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement every year, the entire nation of Israel will receive national forgiveness for their sins against God under the covenant of Moses. This is not the time, by the way, when an individual saw forgiveness for their individual sins. That comes by faith. That's always been the same. This is a a national state of forgiveness, a type of, of forgiveness that extended to the nation in conjunction with the covenant they have with God. 
And in that ceremony, here's what God said must happen as a part of that day. The nation was to take two goats. One of the goats, chosen by lot, by random, would be sacrificed on the temple altar. The other animal was to be taken to the edge of the city, and then the high priest would lay hands on the animal, and through this laying on of hands would transfer the sins of Israel onto this second goat. Then the second goat was kicked out of the city, never to return, and in that way it was understood that the second goat carried the sins of Israel away, the first goat having been the atoning sacrifice for those sins. Now, Scripture calls that second goat the scapegoat, which is where we get the term from. It's the goat that bears the sins of the nation and takes them away. Both of these goats together form a picture of the Lord, of Christ. Christ is both the atoning sacrifice that God accepts in our place for the sins of his people. And Christ is also the one who takes away our sins in the future in the sense that by his resurrection, we will be resurrected in like manner to a glorified, sinless state. So he pays the penalty for our sin, and he is also the way by which we will become without sin. He takes our sins away. Christ is both goats working together, both sides of Christ's redeeming work. Now, look at it in this scene. Remember who Isaac pictures, generally speaking? Christ. And here in this moment, he again pictures Christ. Now, not by his sinful actions, obviously, but merely by his role as the authority figure in the family. He sits as Christ in that sense. Jacob, on the other hand, is what? Well, he's the embodiment of Israel. From him comes Israel. He is Israel. That will be his name. So, according to the law, Israel could only approach the Lord in the tent of meeting after two goats were taken on the Day of Atonement. One was killed the other becomes the means by which sins are taken away. And look at the parallel here. In this moment, before the young Jacob could successfully approach Isaac, two goats had to make that way possible. One became the sacrifice for the meal. The second becomes the covering to make Jacob acceptable to his father. Now, in the way it plays out in this story, it's just sin upon sin upon sin. But even in that, God is capable of taking those behaviors, wrong as they were, and turn them into a beautiful picture of what he would one day do through the Lord. Now, why did Rebecca call for two goats? She didn't need them to make the food. She didn't probably need them to have as much hair as she used on Jacob. Why would she have done it? The only answer is it's a glorious example of God's sovereignty to create, even in some of these smallest details, the pieces necessary to tell a story. We serve a mighty God. And since he gets his way every time, let's resolve to serve him in obedience instead of testing him by our sin. Father, we do give the glory and the honor to you that you richly deserve as we see in your word the power of your sovereignty. That you can show us through the examples of these four how sin can ruin a family, can disrupt the harmony you intend, can work against the glory of your word, and yet could never hope to stand in the way of your purposes. We can rest in that, Father, for we know in our own life we have so many things we regret, so many sins and, 
And in the future, more to come, we, we are sure, unfortunately. But we can rest in the fact that none of these things, Father, can interrupt your plan or thwart your purpose or undermine your promises. But don't let that become an excuse in our hearts, Father. I pray you would continue to show us the value of an obedient life. First and most of all, Father, the value to your glory. And then secondly, Father, the, the fruit that it can bear in our lives. Continue to instruct us in your word. Continue to grow us wherever you may have opportunity, Father, to bring others and make them a part of what we do and and who we are. Most of all, Father, prepare us for the day of our judgment and the return of your Son, which we know, Father, is so close. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.